And here we go, everybody. It is another edition of Jamal About Sports coming to you on a Wednesday, January 11th, 2017. Big show to get to tonight. A lot of NFL will break down the wild card games. Of course, another loss, excuse me, for my Lions. Talk about, uh, take a look at the games coming up this weekend. Talk about the, uh, the epic national championship game between Alabama and Clemson. And actually talk a little bit about the NBA, of all things, as we uh, near the quasi-halfway point in the NBA season. But we start with the NFL wildcard weekend, which frankly was a dud. None of the games were really all that entertaining. None of the games were particularly competitive uh, on the scoreboard. You start out with the uh, Houston and Oakland game, which we knew was going to be a dud. We talked about it last week's show. Oakland down to their third-string quarterback. The Texans have Brock Osweiler back in the fold as their starter after having benched him for poor play in favor of Tom Savage who then suffered a concussion in the last game of the year, thereby forcing the Texans to move back to Brock Osweiler. That, that game was about as unwatchable a game as you'll get. And if you're a Raiders fan, you got to be sick to your stomach because that was a team, again, were they making the Super Bowl, having to go through New England at some point? Probably not. But certainly you had to think with a healthy David uh, Derek Carr Boy, I keep saying David Carr. I'm like my dad now, who constantly <laughs> calls, he used to call Barry Bonds Bobby Bonds. Now I know what it's like. Eesh. Anyway, Derek Carr, uh, you know, had a great year. Excellent young quarterback for the Raiders. Plus, not only that, his backup, Matt McGloin, listen, who knows if Matt McGloin's any good. He started a few games throughout the course of his career. He didn't look like a total disaster. But I, I think it's unfair to say, Oakland definitely would have beaten Houston in Houston because Houston does have a good defense. Their offense is nothing to write home about at all. They do have a solid defense. Uh, so it's not fair to say the Raiders would have won if Matt McGloin was a quarterback, but certainly I think you could have said that the Raiders could have been expected to win that game with a healthy Derek Carr. And to add insult to injury, not only do they not obviously not have the backup quarterback, Matt McGloin, they're starting a rookie, Connor Cook, fourth-round pick out of Michigan State, who, while he had a nice college career, uh, was a fourth-round pick out of Michigan State and hadn't played all year and hadn't taken any snaps and hadn't practiced. So, you know, not really uh, – it's not realistic to expect him to do anything. And then add that – add to the fact that their starting left tackle, Donald Penn, very good player, was also out of the game. So you add those things together, and what that amounts to is no shot for the Raiders. Zero. Now, you could nitpick, and I did. I mean, the fact the Raiders came out and tried to run the ball early with a lot of heavy sets by adding a, a sixth offensive lineman, which they had done a lot throughout the course of the season. See, but you can get away with that a little bit if you have a threat of a passing game when Derek Carr is a quarterback. But when the other team knows you're going to run the ball because you have a third-string quarterback in there, you know, they're going to put eight, nine guys in the box 
and shut down the run, which Houston did. So they didn't do really themselves and or Connor Cook any favors by insisting on trying to run the ball in first down the first three or four series of the game. Um, but I could also understand it. I mean, they, you know, they, they probably thought, listen, we, we can't you know, have this guy throwing a pick six on the first series of the game. Um, so anyway, if you're a Raiders fan, I, I, feel, I feel for you. I do. Uh, but they certainly look poised to be uh, a, a definite force in the AFC West for sure and the AFC overall next year uh, with a healthy team. They need, they need some improvements on defense. You can use a middle linebacker, a couple of D-backs. But, you know, they've got a good pass rush. Maybe somebody replaced Bruce Irvin, who's okay on the right side. Uh, Khalil Mack, we all know, stud on the left side. Move him around a lot, actually. Makes a ton of plays. Um, but, anyway, that game was unwatchable. Which brings us to the Lions game. Which, listen, I'm not going to pretend the Lions are a better team than the Seahawks. I know going into Seattle, for any team, is a, tough, is a tall order. You know, we saw it. Several years ago, when Seattle won the division, I believe, at 7-9. and nine, And a Saints team, which I believe had won 11 games that year, and went in as, I believe, an 8 or 9. It might have even been a 10-point favorite. And went in Seattle, and that was the, the famous Beast Mode game, where Marshawn Lynch ran over, around, and through what seemingly looked like the entire Saints defense uh, on route to a, a Seattle victory. Um, so Seattle's probably the toughest place to play in the league. Uh, they'd won nine straight games at home in the playoffs. So it was going to be a tall order anyway. But, you know, when on the first series of the game, Golden Tate drops a surefire first down and maybe even a potential big game on a perfectly thrown slant. Uh, and then on the ensuing punt, the referees called a penalty, which I've never seen called, which was a legal block in the, illegal block in the back on the Lions, on Johnson Betamosi, who that's his one thing, is he's a special teams player. Think old school Cowboys, not old school. Well, I guess it is kind of old school now. Kenny Gant, the Shark, number 29. Betamosi also wears 29. Yeah, he was a Cowboys special teams ace in those Jimmy Johnson era and Barry Switzer teams. He gets called for legal block in the back because he, he pushes the guys blocking him in the back to disengage and go make a tackle. Since when is that illegal? Since when can you even have an illegal block in the back on a defensive player? It wasn't an illegal block in the back as if somebody from the Seahawks was rushing to go to block the punt and a guy in the lines was blocking him and blocking him in the back. That's a legit call. No, 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 no. This was 30 yards down the field. Never seen it before. And by the way, just in case, lest anybody think I'm again, I know, here's Jamal whining and moaning and groaning. I get it. Mike Pereira, unsolicited on Sunday while he was doing the game with Troy and uh, Buck for the Cal- uh, the Giants-Packers game said that he doesn't agree with the idea that th- this concept the NFL has where they do these quote-unquote all-star crews. He thinks it's a bad move. And he said, you know, it, it worked, so it's worked okay except for that game last night in Seattle. That's not how you want the game to go. It was a horror show. So as soon as that happened, I knew we were in for a long night. You had the non-face mask that was called. This is now twice this has happened against the Lions on a touchdown in the end zone where, yes, the Lions defender uh, committed pass interference and Paul Richardson makes a ridiculous one-handed catch, but also because his other arm is pulling, grabbing, tugging, yanking, whatever term you want to use, the face mask of Tavon Wilson, a line safety. 
out there for the whole world to see. And explain to me how the ref was close enough to call the interference, but couldn't see the face mask somehow. Explain that to me. Then you had the no call at a 13-6 game in the fourth quarter early on about a 40-45 yard play to TJ Jones where the corner for Seattle tackles him. The ball lands maybe a yard past him. The guy's got the flag in his hand ready to throw it and then doesn't throw it. Yeah, I wonder why. Perhaps fearing the wrath of the fans, the 12th man. So, again, I understand. Seahawks are a better team. Lions offense is lousy. Defensive line got gashed. Lions linebackers stink. They let Thomas Rawls run all over them. All that being said, game was still 13-6 in the fourth quarter. Maybe a couple calls go your way or don't go your way. I mean, listen, I'm not, I'm not asking the refs to cheat for the Lions. Just a fair whistle. That's all. So overall, look, it was a decent year for the Lions considering they had a lot of deficiencies on that team, talent-wise. They need at least two pass rushers, at least two linebackers. Probably another safety, another corner. Probably going to need at least one offensive lineman because they've got two free agents at right guard and right tackle. And they need uh, probably another wide receiver. And probably a tight end because, by the way, Eric Ebron probably made the worst draft pick in the history of the Lions. The worst. I understand he had decent numbers this year, 60 catches, 700 yards. Don't care. He had one touchdown. He's not a threat in the red zone. He had an enormous drop on the second series of the game against the Seahawks on Saturday night. Third and five, Stafford drills him, hits him right in the gut on the sideline. He's going to set up first and 10 at the 35, which for the Lions is field goal range because Matt Prater literally did not miss a kick from 50 yards plus this year, and he did it again Saturday night. And instead he drops the ball and Lions punt. I mean, listen, I understand Stafford wasn't perfect. His receivers did absolutely nothing to help him. Golden Tate with a huge drop. Ebron with a huge drop. Marvin Jones had a huge drop later in the game. So, and basically no running game to speak of. I mean, I like Zach Zenner. He's a good workman like back, catches the ball well, does everything well. Not a star by any stretch. But you know what? I'll go to, I'll, I, I will, you can always have a guy like Zach Zenner on a team that I like. Always. Play special teams. Guy, do anything you want. Smart. Yes, I understand he had the one fumble against the Giants. Other than that, played very well. So that game turned into a blowout, but it was kind of close. I mean, again, it was, it was a one-score game, 13-6, fourth quarter. Turned into a blowout late. It's fine. And then on Sunday, you had the Pittsburgh-Miami game at one. That game actually was a bit of a game, first half, a bit of a trend here. First half, that was a game. Miami driving, about to have a shot to make it 20-14, to 14, at worst 20-10. to 10. After, I mean, listen, Antonio Brown scores on a wide receiver screen, 50 yards. Le'Veon Bell, long touchdown. Antonio Brown, another one. I mean, listen, those, we talked about it last week. Those, they're probably two of the best, if not the two best players at their positions in the NFL. And Le'Veon Bell does it all, and he does it in, in, in a completely unique way. He does what you every you tell every running back to not do, which is he he shuffles his feet, he picks and chooses before he hits the hole, but then man, when he hits the hole, he's through the hole fast. 
And then he also can move laterally without giving up any ground. And he breaks tackles, and he catches the ball great. I mean, the guy's just a, he's a wonderful player. Wonderful player. You talk about a guy who has improved by leaps and bounds. I mean, he came into the league as kind of a chunky sort of plotter, three yards in a cloud of dust, Michigan State, Big Ten. And now he's like slimmed down, he's sleek, the guy does everything. He's tremendous. And Antonio Brown, the Lions, you know, there's been the curse of Bobby Lane, maybe now a curse of Barry Sanders since we haven't had a good running back practically since Barry retired. Call it, call it the, the curse of Antonio Brown. Central Michigan, right there in their backyard, sixth-round pick, I believe, of the Steelers. I think it was the same year the Lions drafted Titus Young in the second round. I think Matt Stafford might like to have Antonio Brown. Anyway, 20-7, Dolphins driving, third down. Matt Moore gets sacked by who else? James Harrison at 39 years old, still going strong, still making big plays. Sack, fumble, recover. Game over. That was it. That was it. The Dolphins had a shot to get themselves back in that game. Fumble at the end of the half. That was it. Game over. The route was on. And then that brings us to our last game of the weekend, which was the Giants at the Packers. Similar set of circumstances. A little bit different in the fact that the Giants dominated the Packers for about, I'd say the first quarter and a half, maybe even more of that game. Except Odell Beckham Jr. dropped a touchdown to himself for a field goal. He dropped a huge first down on the first series of the game. And rather than elect to go for it on fourth down from the 35, which I think uh, McAdoo should have done, because field goals and punts ain't getting it done against Aaron Rodgers, particularly lately as hot as he's been, and in Lambeau. Now, I understand the defense, got a, I think, got a three and out, and they got the ball back good field position, and they're kicking a field goal. Not, I understand that. But huge drop by Beckham on the first series. Dropped a touchdown. Shepard dropped a touchdown. I mean, they talk about receivers letting the quarterback down. Lions receivers let down Stafford. Giants receivers let down Eli in a huge way. They were awful. Atrocious. And I don't want to hear about the boat trip or any other nonsense. It had nothing to do with anything. Nothing to do with anything. Listen, I understand if you're going to do that stuff and you're going to act like a 15-year-old girl and put everything on Instagram, okay, then you're going to open yourself up for that criticism. Comes with the territory. I personally don't care. I don't think it meant anything. I don't think that's why those guys had bad games. I think the weather may have had something to do with it. I think maybe trying too hard in a big spot. Listen, first time these guys have been in the playoffs. It's different. It's different. I mean, by, by the way, could the Packers get any luck here? I mean, Giants literally, they're up 6 nothing in that game. They should have been up minimum 14 nothing, probably 17 nothing. And then they give up the touchdown 7-6. Giants get the ball back, have a shot to do a four-minute drill at the end of the first half. Down 7-6. Maybe you go down, kick a field goal 9-7. Best case scenario, obviously, score a touchdown. You go up 13-7. Don't give Rodgers any more time. Giants go three and out. Punt. Defense answers the bell again. They get a three and out. Giants get the ball back on third and one. On a must-make first down. There's like a minute and a half left. The Packers, I think, have one or two timeouts. They have one left. I think they burned the first two. Not burned. Used the first two correctly to keep time on the clock. They hand off the ball to Bobby Rainey, the smallest of the three running backs they had. Rashad Jennings had run well in short yardage situations uh, during that game. 
Paul Perkins is their other back. He's not really a thumper. I mean, if you're going to hand the ball off there, you got to hand it to, to Rashad Jennings. Maybe Paul Perkins, certainly not Bobby Rainey. Giants get stoned, punt the ball back. Packers come down the field. Now, of course, in typical Packers, charmed life, Aaron Rodgers, charmed life fashion, the play before the Hail Mary, Rodgers hits Jared Cook, the tight end, for about a 20-yard gain down to the 20, and he drops the ball, except the best thing that could have happened to the Giants is he caught the ball, because by the time they ran down the field, trying to get up and spike it, time would have expired. But instead, he drops it, and it's not like he did it on purpose, it's not like he was savvy enough to know that. So he drops the ball, stops the clock, leaving, of course, the Packers one more play. They score the Hail Mary, the, the reverse of what happened to the Packers with the Giants into the Packers in 2011 when Manning hit the Keem Knicks for like a 36-yard touchdown at the end of the first half. And, of course, if you watch the replay, by the way, great throw. Listen, Rodgers is great. I know he's great. I've said a million times that he's great. I also hate the way the refs, you know, protect him. And they protect his offensive line. And they let them hold on practically every play. They never call it. But give the guy his due. He's great in a lot of ways. And one of the ways he's really good, he throws the best Hail Mary deep ball in the league. I mean, he just does. I, I hate to say it, but he does. But if you watch on that play, if you go back and look at it closely, and Giants fans, I'm sure you don't want to. But if you did, if you were watching closely, or if you want to look at it again, watch how Randall Cobb very gently, very subtly, pushes, I think it was Eli Apple, in the back to gain just enough separation to catch that ball. And, of course, Aikman and Buck lost. Lost in the booth. How do you let him get behind you? Okay, fair point. But then when you go back and show the replay, how about you show the fact that Randall Cobb shoved the guy? And I get, oh, they're never going to call it. Oh, they never call that. Well... Okay, that's fair, I guess. They'd probably call it the other way in Lambeau. <clears throat> so really a very disappointing first weekend of playoff games. Now we go to this week's games, and listen, to me, there are three good games. One game is basically not even worth watching. And the first game is houston New England, I believe the number is 16, which is 16 is an enormous number for a regular season game, let alone a playoff game. It's almost unheard of. That game's unwatchable. Of course, for some some reason, I guess because it's the Patriots, that's the primetime game on Saturday night. Thankfully, I, um, uh, I have something to do that night. I'll be out. So I have no qualms about missing that game at all. Zero interest in that game. Earlier game that day is Atlanta-Seattle. Now, I told you guys last week, Atlanta's my, my team. That's my, that's my pick to get to the Super Bowl. This will be an interesting test. They're at home. Seattle's a different team away than they are at home. Again, I understand the Falcons gave up a ton of points, but they rush the passer. They've got some safeties, particularly the, the rookie Cannon Neal. Hits like a Mack truck. Vic Beasley had a great year for them, pass rusher. I understand the defense isn't great. But their offense is as good as anyone's. You know, I know they don't play in Dallas. They're not Green Bay, so they don't get all the hype. Matt Ryan had a hell of a year. They've got two great backs in Freeman and Coleman. 
They've got the best receiver, if, arguably the best receiver in the league, in Julio Jones. Here, Antonio Brown, take your pick. Except he's different, you know, physically. He's a big physical guy. I'd actually probably take Antonio Brown over him, but you, you could do a lot worse than Julio Jones. Uh, Mohamed Sanu, who they signed away from the Bengals in the offseason. <clears throat> Very good move. The chains guy. Then you throw in Taylor Gabriel, a little fast, deep threat guy. They got plenty of weapons on offense. And again, we talked about Seattle's defense a little is compromised with the loss of Earl Thomas. And you know what? Give the Lions offensive line credit. They were down to their third string right tackle. Cornelius Lucas, they held up okay. Were they great? No, they weren't perfect. They didn't play a perfect game. They held up okay. So that would be an interesting game, but I, I, I thoroughly expect Atlanta to win that game. And then Sunday you've got the two, the, really the two best games, I think, which is Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh, Kansas City is their early game. Interesting game. Steelers on a roll. Kansas City on a roll. You know, to me, this game's all about who do you think has a better chance to beat the Patriots? And I think on reputation and at first glance, you say the Steelers because they've done it before. And they've, they've got the better quarterback in Roethlisberger. Listen, I've killed Alex Smith on my show over the years. Anyone who's listened knows that. i got to give credit where credit's due. The guy's turned into a good, solid NFL quarterback. He really has. He's an above-average NFL quarterback. I never thought that those words would leave my mouth. But i got to give the guy credit. I mean, look, they've been in the playoffs, what, two, three, three years since he's been there? Guy does a decent job. So, to me, it's all about Steelers have a better shot at beating the Patriots or does Kansas City have a better shot at beating the Patriots? What you like about Kansas City's chances to beat the Patriots is the fact that they rushed the passer. Talked about it last week. Tom Bahali, um, Justin Houston, although I don't know if he's healthy. I have to look that up. D. Ford. Great D-back, Marcus Peters and Eric Berry. Marcus Peters, I think, led the league in interceptions. Uh, Eric Berry, excellent safety, also had a huge year for them. So you like Kansas City's defense to maybe slow down that Patriots offense. Question is, can Kansas City's offense put enough points on the board against the Patriots? Because, again, they kind of do it in gimmicky ways. But... And the Steelers' offense certainly is better. You know, Steelers' offense, when it's clicking on all cylinders, is as good as any offense in the NFL. And they are rolling right now. So, personally, I'd like to see Pittsburgh win that game. I mean, I don't really have a huge dog in the fight, but i just like to see them win. I think they have a better shot at beating the Patriots in Kansas City. And then, of course... The game that's got my man A.G. pacing on pins and needles, Green Bay at Dallas on Sunday afternoon, 4.30, 4.40, whenever, whenever they decide they want to kick the game off. By the way, what is this idiocy now with these ridiculous – can you just start the game at 1 and then 4 or at 8? I mean, why does it have to be 4.40? Or, okay, if you want to start the late game at 4.30, fine, because you're, you're worried that maybe the, the early game goes over a little bit. 
But if you're doing a Sunday, a Saturday night game, just start the damn game at eight o'clock. Do I need an hour and fifteen minutes of pregame nonsense? Anyway, and although I'm no huge Cowboys fan, boy, will I be rooting hard for them on Sunday. And it'll be very interesting to see. I mean, I don't know. Like the, the, the refs' heads may explode trying to figure out who to give more calls to in that game. I, I, I'm not sure. You know, because Dallas is filled with stars now. I mean, forget it. You know, they got the star on the helmet, of course. But, I mean, now they've got such young stars and Dak Prescott and Zeke Elliott and Des Bryant is already a star. Yeah. Listen, I, I understand those guys are really good. Des not as much as he used to be, but certainly Elliott and Prescott have had great years. Um, you know, I don't think it's, you know, listen, we'll see what happens. Odell Beckham, a couple of other young giant players that had never been in the playoffs before, they didn't handle it well. We'll see how these guys do. Now, they're at home. It's going to be, you know, controlled. You know, weather won't play a factor. You know, Elliott has obviously played in huge games before, national championship. Went off against Oregon a couple of years ago. You know, I don't suspect it'll be a big deal for those guys. And Green Bay's defense, by the way, let's just be honest, it stinks. Green, Green Bay's defense isn't any good before, and now they've got a million injuries in the secondary. It's really not good now. Particularly with that Dallas offensive line, they, they should maul the Packers. Maul them. And obviously that's been their game plan all year. Keep their defense off the field, possess the ball as long as they can, score touchdowns. Don't settle for field goals. You're not beating Aaron Rodgers with field goals. And then now Rodgers probably know Jordy Nelson this week. I think he broke his rib against the Giants. Um, you know, listen, he finds ways to make it work. Devontae Adams has had a nice year. Randall Cobb is back now. You know, this Ty Montgomery, they use him as a running back. They use him as a receiver. Jared Cook, the tight end, has started to become a reliable weapon for Rodgers. The offensive line gets to hold, clutch, hold, grab, do whatever they need to do. Keep Rodgers upright. We know that. Dallas' defensive line, pass rushing, and all that great anyway, other than David Irving. They do get DeMarcus Lawrence back. He gives you a little pass rush. They do get Mo Claiborne back, the corner that should help them. Listen, if you're the Cowboys and you went 14-2, and two, find a way. Just find a way to win the damn game. That's it. Just find a way. I don't care if it's 45-44. Figure it out. Be very interesting. Very, very interesting. Because if the Cowboys were to lose this game, I mean, A.G. said it. He's not here, but trust me, he said this. It will be as if this whole season was for naught. Now, as a Cowboys fan, certainly I understand that. And because they get so much coverage, I'm sure that will be the narrative in the media afterwards. But big picture, it's clearly not the case. Because when your quarterback and your running back, your quarterback had a great year. Who knows if he can keep it up? 
Your running back's a stud, and they're both rookies. You would think you've got the nice, you've got a great foundation moving forward. Now, listen, a lot of stuff can happen. I mean, I, I thought after the 2011 season Matthew Stafford had, we were going to be in the playoffs every year. Hasn't happened. Been in twice since then. But I thought not only would we be the Lions being in the playoffs, but a factor hasn't happened. So you never know what can happen, but this is just an enormous game. And of course, it's highly annoying that Rodgers made his little run the table comment when the Packers were four and six, and of course they were able to run the table. So, um, and, and again, you have to say it, it's 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 ninety percent due to him. Again, I don't give the Packers defense any credit whatsoever because it's not any good. And if you're a Giants fan, honestly, you have to be sick about last week. I understand the game just t- t- devolved into a blowout in the second half. But anybody with eyes and knows anything about football, watch again. The first, I don't know, 40, 30, 26 minutes of that game, the Giants completely dominated. But I, I knew it was a bad sign. I was texting with my buddy Justin. I'm like, dude, you guys are dominating. He's a big Giants fan. You're up 6 nothing. Not good. Completely dominating. Not even up more than one score. Not good. He knew it. Giants have some work to do. They need a tight end. I mean, Will Ty was okay. But if they ever got themselves a real stud at tight end for Eli, that would be huge. But they really need to uh, upgrade that offensive line. Eric Flowers, not a left tackle. He needs to be flipped over to right tackle. They need to find themselves a left tackle. That's going to be tough. Where they're drafting, you typically don't get surefire stud left tackles in the draft. That means they're going to have to go out and pay for one in free agency. I don't know who's available. I haven't looked yet. But, yeah, the Giants need to get a better offensive line in place. They, they, they probably need a left tackle and a right guard. And then you can move Flowers to right tackle. Pugh stays at left guard. Richtenberg stays at center. And then you have your new left tackle and your new right guard. I mean, can you imagine if Eli had the time that Rodgers gets – or Dak Prescott gets. I mean, Eli does pretty well when, when he's amongst chaos. And you know what? The Giants, listen, Paul Perkins looks like a nice back. They had a real stud at running back. And, I mean, I understand it's asking for a lot. It's a lot of things you need to get. But a good GM can find those Pieces. I mean, hell, you can get a damn good starting guard on day one in the third round in the draft if you do your homework. Same thing with a running back. Look at David Johnson for the Cardinals. He was a third-round pick. You guys, the best bay next to Le'Veon Bell. He's right on par with Le'Veon Bell. You guys, tremendous. So, anyway, we're gonna take a short break. We'll be back with. The National Championship, right after this. Hey, 
And we are back. That, of course, that of course was the lovely Debbie Harry from Blondie. <clears throat> the reason I played that song, we'll digress real quick, is I'm watching this great documentary on uh, Netflix called The Evolution of Hip Hop. Uh, talks about basically, you know, the origins of hip hop in the Bronx, Cool Herc, early 70s, DJing. At these house parties, they actually make mention of him in uh, that show Vinyl as well. And uh, while he wasn't a rapper, he was a DJ, and he would play two records at once, which nobody was doing at the time, and basically playing just the breaks, uh, the drum breaks on the records, and playing you know, two at the same time and mixing them back and forth, and nobody had done that before. In any event, as they uh, show the evolution, they get into the early 80s, uh, Blondie's Rapture, where she uh, name checks in today's parlance, or shout outs, uh, Fab Five Freddy, um, and uh, DJ uh, Grandmaster Flash in that song sort of brought uh, hip hop to another audience um, and continued the evolution. So, in any event, if you're a hip hop fan, uh, I recommend it highly. It's called The Evolution of Hip Hop, and it is on Netflix. In any event, moving forward to the Alabama-Clemson game. Listen, other than the when before that we had the true national championship games when it was still the idiotic BCS system, that USC-Texas game when Texas won in the closing seconds, Vince Young uh, against Matt Leiner and the USC team. Uh, and maybe before any of that stuff, back in the day in 84, when Nebraska went for two against Miami, knowing that if they tied, they probably would have a split national champion because they probably would have split the polls and the coaches poll, the AP and the UPI in those days. Um, this was a hell of a game. I mean, you, you, you got, you, Clemson scores a game-winning touchdown with basically one second to go. Uh, after it looked like in the first half, Alabama was going to knock them out. Clemson hung around. They hung in there. Uh, the receiver for Clemson, Mike Williams, made some amazing catches as did their tight end. Uh, number 16, forget his name now. But uh, you got to give the uh, Deshaun Watson, the Clemson quarterback, a ton of credit. I mean, the kid took a bunch of big shots early, uh, really hung in there, played a great game down the stretch. And uh, 35-31, I mean, what, what, what more do you want? Hell of a game. And, you know, there's a lot of talk about, well, Alabama's offense is really bad. Uh, you know, certainly didn't hurt help them that uh, the court, uh, their running back Scarborough broke his leg. He was running all over Clemson early in the game, and he had 93 yards and 16 carries, including a long touchdown run in the first half. And you know, they made the much publicized switch from Lane Kiffin, who had taken a job at Florida Atlantic University, but was still the offense coordinator for the first playoff game against Washington, and the offense looked lousy in that game, and. You know, they claimed it was a mutual parting of the ways, but essentially, you know, the general consensus is is that Nick Saban basically told Lane, Kick, Lane Kiffin to beat it. By the way, Lane Kiffin, a guy who's worn out his welcome every single place he's been, yet continues to get jobs. I mean, the Raiders, Tennessee, USC, Alabama. And I think it says something that he would go to a nothing program like Florida Atlantic University. I mean, is that the best job he could get as a head coach? Really? Anyway. <clears throat> um, 
So there was a lot made that they switched then Steve Sarkeesian, the disgraced Steve Sarkeesian, former uh, coach at Washington, uh, coach at USC, had some off-the-field issues, some alcohol problems, showed up a couple of booster events, uh, clearly drunk, um, you know, whatever, was relieved of his duties, uh, landed on his feet at Alabama in an advisory role, some kind of offensive assistant advisor role. So Saban tells uh, <clears throat> Kiffin, get out, insert Sark as the uh, offensive coordinator, play caller for the game. And a lot of people are like, oh, it could be a huge deal. And then people are saying, now, well, certainly. Not. I mean, listen, Alabama scored 31 points. They scored 31 points. With, an, with that defense, <clears throat> excuse me, and Nick Saban, you would think that Alabama would win the game. I mean, I think if, if I were to tell you before the game Alabama's going to score 31, would you tell me that they're going to win or they're going to lose? Given their track record, given Nick Saban's reputation as a defensive genius, which he is, and if, again, I said it last week, there's like six guys on that Alabama defense that I would want to play for the Lions defense tomorrow. But they were on a field for 90-something plays. And I guess you could say part of that is due to the fact that Alabama's offense kind of stalled in the second half. But when Jalen Hurts, the freshman quarterback for Alabama, runs it in for seemingly the game-winning touchdown with two minutes left, I think if you're an Alabama fan, you figure, well, well, the defense will figure out a way now. They'll find a way. And it was interesting. You know, Clemson obviously could have kicked a field goal there. It was, it was uh, you know, what did I say, 35-31? Yeah, that's right, because it was 31-28. So Clemson could have kicked a field goal and sent the game into overtime. But they went for it and got it. I mean, it was a little risky. Six seconds left, I think, is when they ran the play. Now, obviously, you're throwing a play in the end zone. But, you know, you never know. To get sacked there could be, you know, game over. Obviously, interception, game over. But give, give Clemson credit. And again, if Alabama's, when the, if Alabama's, I'd love to know Alabama's record when they scored 31 points. Uh, I'll bet you it's probably one of the few games they've ever lost when they've scored 31 points in a game. So I, I, don't, I don't really think that the switching of coordinators really had much of an uh, impact on the game at all. Interesting side note to that game is that the Clemson quarterback, Deshaun Watson, uh, Warwick Dunn, former running back in the NFL, uh, made most of his bones with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, outstanding NFL player, played at Florida State, really good in the pros, just a quality, quality individual, um, has a charity where he builds homes for uh, families, I think typically single mothers, underprivileged, you know, fighting, you know, uh, with financial issues. Uh, he's got a foundation that builds homes, and he's, he's actively involved. This isn't just some you know write-off for his taxes. And uh, this kid, Deshaun Watson, the quarterback from Clemson, grew up in one of those homes. There's a nice little side story. Good on you there, Warwick Dunn. And speaking of which, you know, I, I got to give the Domino's, the pizza company, credit in their, their never-ending search for, uh, to, to, to cure social injustice. So I don't know if you guys know this. Domino's, um, they do these pizza specials. And um, for uh, a medium 
or a large three-topping pizza. On Monday through Wednesday, it's one price. And then, but if you got it from Thursday through the weekend, it's a different price. And, you know, Domino's said, you know what, that's wrong. That's wrong. So guess what? We're going to make it the same price all week long. So now it'll cost you the same price to poison yourself with their crappy pizza. <laughs> it's the same price all week long. So, you know, Domino's, thank you so much. That, that, that was sweet. That was really nice. I, I you know, I, I can't, uh, can't thank you enough for constantly looking out for, the, for the, the good of the American people. How sweet of you. I mean, I, it, I, I'm, I'm clearly referring to You can't escape this commercial. They show it all the time if you watch an NFL game, if you watch a college game. I mean, it's on all the time. It's the most ridiculous thing I think I've ever seen in my life. Now, listen, I get it. I'm a Brooklyn guy. I grew up in Brooklyn. I live in Brooklyn. I live in Manhattan, whatever. Brooklyn pizza, New York City pizza is the best pizza in the world. I don't think anybody would, or certainly in the country, I don't know about the world, never had real pizza in Italy. But, uh, you know, so whatever, I get it. You know, listen, I'm not going to lie. I ate the crap out of some Domino's pizza when I was in college. But that, to me, that's about what it's for is for college kids. But anyway, we digress. So I'd bring that up. And then lastly, we'll end up with uh, – we'll talk about some, the NBA. We'll talk about the Knicks first uh, just a little bit because they are, as usual, a complete and utter joke and a disaster and an embarrassment. I mean they're, 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 they are a clown show. Uh, Phil Jackson's a clown show. Um, hey, Phil, go away. Just go away. Okay. And the reason I'm saying this is because uh, the latest in, in, in Nick Clowndom is Derek Rose, the uh, high-profile acquisition, the, 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 the point guard that was going to really turn things around. And to his credit, he's played okay. He's played fairly well for the Knicks. Um, decided that uh, he had some sort of an issue. He's claiming it was a family issue, but he's not saying specifically what it was. But he had to leave before a game the other night. Uh, to go back to Chicago. But he didn't tell anybody. And he didn't call anybody. And when the Knicks called him and said, where the hell are you? He didn't answer the phone. And then I guess uh, Joe Kim Noah got in touch with them. And he said he was fine. And then he came back on Tuesday and said it was such an emergency that he just had to go. And he couldn't deal with anybody. But yet he's back already. And as far as anybody knows... Nobody is super sick in his family. Um, you know, so no one really knows what this issue is. I mean, I'm inclined to take a guy at his word and say, if there's a family issue, of course you go. It's much more important than a basketball game. But is it really hard, particularly in today's day and age, to send a text to the coach, the general manager, the president, somebody on your team and say, hey, I had it's a last minute emergency. I had to get on a plane and go to Chicago. You can't do that. Of course you can. It's ridiculous. It's absurd. So how did the Knicks handle this? Well, they find them, no suspension, and that's that because they are they're a mess. They've lost eight of nine games. They play the Sixers tonight. They're in desperation mode. Guaranteed, by the way, they lose tonight to the Sixers. Team plays zero defense, zero. Their best player, supposed best player, Carmelo Anthony, gives no effort. He's a disaster. I mean, the whole team's a mess. They really are a mess. They, they've got some young, talented pieces on that team. Porzingis. I like Hernan Gomez. Although his playing time has been reduced for some reason. Um, 
you know, I like Kuzminkis, the other European kid on the team. Well, he's not that young. He's 27, but he's a rookie by NBA standards. You know, Kyle Quinn had, had, had had some really nice games. But, you know, Carmelo leads the league in getting thrown out of games now by getting double technicals because he's a crybaby. And he knows. He can just see when the game is gone. I mean, Carmelo Anthony is a classic front runner. When things are going well, Carmelo's great. When the chips are down, Carmelo is nowhere to be found. Nowhere. And listen, he's 32 years old. That body's taken a ton of punishment, a lot of wear and tear. He's not nearly as athletic as he used to be. He struggles now to get his own shot off against anybody who's even remotely a decent defender. The Knicks need to tear this whole thing and start from scratch. Tear it down and start from scratch. But where's Phil Jackson in all this? No comment. He leaves Jeff Hornacek hanging out there to dry to field questions from the media about the Derrick Rose situation when that's not what the head coach is supposed to do. This is an organizational thing. So where's Steve Mills? Or where, by the way, is Mr. Phil Jackson with the $12 million a year? Nothing. You can alert, alert everybody, by the way, via social media. You're a 70-year-old man, by the way. Sound familiar? All over Twitter, like a 70-year-old man. You know, an embarrassment. That you broke up with your girlfriend, your longtime girlfriend, Jeannie Buss, which unfortunately means you probably won't be going back to the Lakers now. But just get out of here. Take Dolan's money and go. Just go. All right, on to more interesting topics in the NBA. So I really am not a big NBA guy anymore, frankly, but there's three guys in the NBA NBA to me that are worth, if you are an NBA fan, that are worth paying attention to and worth noting. Um, And that is uh, Russell Westbrook, James Harden, and DeMar DeRozan. All three are guards, and uh, they are... Let me see. I believe they're one, three, and six in the NBA in scoring. But they all have very interesting stories. The first one, to me, will start with James Harden, who, frankly, one of my least favorite players in the the NBA to watch um, for a number of different reasons. One, the dopey beard. I'm sorry. Uh, call, Call me an old curmudgeon, whatever you want to do. I, I can't. I just can't. Secondly, his game up until this year, just uh, aesthetically hideous. Hideous. Yeah, spread the floor. Let James Harden dribble the ball at the top of the key till there's about six seconds left in the shot clock. Then he either fire up an ill-advised three, which sometimes he makes, or drive uncontrollably to the basketball, to the basket, throw, throw the ball up towards the rim, flail your arms out, kick your legs out, and for some reason get calls all over the place and get to the foul line. That was basically James Harden's game and playing zero defense. Well, Houston hired Mike D'Antoni. Yes, that Mike D'Antoni, former Knicks coach, as their coach this year. Mike D'Antoni in the offseason said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make James Harden the point guard. Completely counterintuitive. What? Guy's a ball hog. Doesn't make uh, other players around him better. Well, all James Harden has done, by the way, so far this year, averaging 28.5 points a game. 12, just shy of 12 assists, 11, 8, and 8 and 8.4 rebounds. I think he's had seven games with 15 assists this year. Uh, he is, let's see, shooting percentage is 44%, which is good for a guard. 
shooting 35% from three. He's getting to the foul line 10 times a game. He's making eight, almost nine. You know, he's shooting, yeah, whatever, 88, 90% from the foul. I mean, the guy's having an unbelievable year. And, by the way, the Rockets themselves are having a good year. They're 31-9. I'd say, I'd have to say that your early coach of the year in the NBA is Mike D'Antoni. Who, by the way, was doing a nice job with the Knicks until James Dolan had to get involved and get make them trade for Carmelo Anthony, the who's the exact opposite of what D'Antoni likes on in a player for his offense. So, I gotta give James Harden credit. You gotta give D'Antoni a ton. He bought in. Listen, they still don't play. You know, they're they're never and Mike D'Antoni team never never it's never gonna be a great defensive team, but. Rockets are 31-9 in the West, which is a better confident than the East. Not great this year, but it's still better than the East. And James Harden's having an MVP caliber season. Tremendous. Second one is DeMar DeRozan, who's the off-guard for Toronto. Toronto is first in the league. Sorry, first in, the, in their conference. Uh, just beat Boston last night. Let's see. Toronto is... We'll take, they're 25 and 13. All right, 12 games over 500. Not terrible. DeMar DeRozan averaging 28.2 points a game. Uh, also averaging five rebounds and 3.8 assists. What's interesting about DeMar DeRozan is he's averaging 28 points a game. Guy barely shoots threes. Not a three point shooter. Most of his points come on, you know, foul line and just regular traditional twos. Trying to see if I can figure out how many threes he's taken this year. Uh, Three-point attempts. Well, here you go. He averages one and a half three-point attempts a game. That's nothing. I mean, that's, you know, Christoph Porzingis, who's 7-3 for the Knicks, probably averages three or four three-point attempts a game. So DeMar DeRozan, very much an old-school player having a phenomenal year for the Raptors. And again, I find it really interesting that a guard in today's NBA could average 28 points a game and barely ever shoot threes. And then lastly, my man, Russell Westbrook. I mean, I just love this guy. Listen, I get that he is uh, gets a little out of control sometimes. I get that he plays hero ball too much sometimes. But... Oklahoma City's 23 and 16, half a game out of first place in their division. They lost Kevin Durant, one of the top five players in the NBA. And all Russell Westbrook has done is essentially average a triple double this year and keep that team afloat. Now, they've got a couple other decent players on that team. Steven Adams, center, is good. Victor Oladipo, the combo guard, who came over in the big train from Orlando, is okay. It's a little hot and cold. Ennis Cantor, backup center, is a scoring machine. Basically averages a point a minute off the bench. But, you know, the rest of these guys, Andre Roberson, two-guard, more of a defensive specialist, not much of a scorer. Jeremy Grant of the Grant family, nice backup forward, plays defense, blocks block shots. Arvita Sabonis, his kid's a rookie who starts but doesn't give him a whole lot. So, you know... Listen, there's not a lot there. He's basically put that team on his back. He's averaging 31 points, 10 rebounds, and 10 assists a game. 
averaging a triple-double. And just throw, throw in for good measure one and a half steals a game, too. And again, the ferocity, the passion, the fire that this guy plays with, unmatched by anybody in the NBA. I love watching Russell Westbrook play. Now, again, he's not perfect. But I'm just saying from a pure enjoyment standpoint, type of player I like, Russell Westbrook's my guy. Quick note, I see that across the wires here, a couple of NFL coaching vacancies have been filled. We talked about the Jacksonville job being a sneaky good job. They gave the job to Doug Marone, who was a head coach at Syracuse, parlayed that into the head coach of the Bills, didn't like the Bills job, thought he was going to get the Jets job, then he didn't get the Jets job, then he was sort of SOL, took the offensive line coach job for the Jaguars. Well, now he just got the job. In Jacksonville a couple days ago. And they hired old friend Tom Coughlin to assist in the front office. I guess he's president of football operations. Although um, they kept their GM. So that will be interesting to see. And again, biggest question biggest question they've got there is, does he think Blake Bortles is the quarterback moving forward? Does he, or, or doesn't he? Name to watch for Ryan Nassib. I think he played for uh, Marone at Syracuse. He played for Coughlin when he was the coach of the Giants. They drafted him back a quarterback to Eli. Keep your eye on that name as somebody possibly could be in the mix to be the quarterback for Jaguars next year. And then Vance Joseph, the defensive coordinator for the Dolphins, just got hired by the Broncos. Oh, and uh, the Bills then hired Sean McDermott, the defensive coordinator for the Panthers, to be their head coach. And that about wraps it up. That gets you all caught up on everything that's going on in the world of sports. We'll be back next week after the wild card round. Until then, enjoy all the sports and peace out.